All right, uh, grab your Bibles and turn them to Luke chapter 19, and we are going to finish up um, this chapter today. And I want to ask you a question as we get started here. Um, what would make you upset enough to cry? What would make you upset enough to cry? Now, I'm um, I just confess to you, I'm a crier. So like in our, and between me and Cheryl, I'm the crier. So we're watching a movie. I'm the one crying. She's the one making fun of the one crying. <laughs> she does that. It's a great marriage. Um, even a good commercial, I would cry at a good commercial. Uh, so I, I, like I'm one of those sensitive-hearted people, and maybe there are uh, other people like that in the room, uh, more emotive in your uh, makeup, and so more things make you cry uh, more often. And that's, again, not a bad thing. And there's lots of good reasons, in fact, in life why we might be compelled to weep and be sad, uh, the passing of a loved one. And I know there are some in our church family who have only recently um, had the departure of a loved one. The loss of a relationship can cause us to cry and be sad. Hearing a friend's a tough medical uh, prognosis and just entering into the pain of that with them and bearing uh, the burden with them, which is such an awesome thing that we do for one another. Or, and this has been true for me at times, just being overwhelmed with life, just the flood of things coming in and the stress of all of that can at times cause uh, tears. But let me ask you uh, this, what about the plight of those who are still in their sin and are without Christ? And we're surrounded by such people. Does their spiritual condition bring tears to your eyes when you think about it? This was exactly the case for Jesus in Luke 19 as he's entering the city of Jerusalem. Verse 41 in this passage says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. I mean, his heart was broken for the people of this city who would hear his message and reject it. And he knew what the consequences were going to be of all of that. They would reject what he was saying to them, would reject him. And that caused him to weep. And you and I need to ask the same question of ourselves. There's nothing complicated here today. Is my heart broken for those who are without Christ? Let me read the passage, I'll pray for us, and then we'll start working through uh, these verses. This is Luke 19, 41 through to the end of the chapter. And when he, uh, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barric a barricade around you and, and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray together. Father, um, break 
our hearts as your heart is broken for those who are without Christ and in their sin. Father, fill us with the same love that you have demonstrated to us. You sent your son, your one and only son, to give his life in our place. And God, we want to say thank you for that, but help us to demonstrate that same love and to carry out his mission in this world, to tell everyone of the love of Christ, of the saving power of Jesus Christ. Help us to see that in the text today. Father, convict us, change us into the very likeness of Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, there's the question again. Is my heart broken uh, for those who are without Christ? Uh, first, because they've rejected him. They have rejected him, and that should uh, cause me uh, to weep over that. Jesus had entered into this world, in fact, to bring us, and this is such an important word, to bring us peace. The essential problem that we have, the core issue that we have, is that um, we are in a uh, severed relationship. Our relationship with God is severed as a result of our sin, and so there is now hostility between us and God. There is no peace, and Jesus is coming offering his peace to us. And he offers that not just to humanity as a, as a broad stroke, as if it's blanket coverage, but listen, it's offered to each individual separately. Will I, will you accept the peace that God is offering and have that severed relationship reconciled? Notice what he says, verse 42, would that you, even you, now, even in the, in the grammatical construction there, there's emotion. The fact that he repeats it and the way he repeats it. This isn't the first time Jesus has gotten emotional over this very issue. If you go back to Luke chapter 13, in fact, he, he, he cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. And then he talks about the prophets who had come, who were proclaiming the word of God trying to lead the people into obedient living and to, to receive the blessings of God. And the people of Israel murdered them and persecuted them. And so even in Luke 13, Jesus is, is crying out this lament. The apostle Paul later on would pick up on the very same thing in Romans chapter 9. He talks about the deep sadness and the anguish that he has. And in Romans 9, 10, and 11, three chapters where Paul's simply talking about his own countrymen, the Jewish people who had rejected Jesus and his message in the gospel. And so Jesus has this anguish and this sorrow. Paul had it, and for sure we should have it. Again, would that you, even you, had known on this day, he's speaking about the day that he's in, as he enters Jerusalem and sees it, on this day, the things that make for peace, the message that I'm preaching that would overcome the sin that has severed the very natural relationship that should exist between humanity and the creator. And only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ could reconcile that. Now, obviously, very few people in Jerusalem believe that at the time, but the reality for us is that very few Canadians believe that. We, we live in a country where there is a wholesale rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And forget all the controversial things that, that, that people put up in front of a conversation about Christ. All the so-called controversial things that we believe. 
controversial things about abortion, about euthanasia, about marriage, about sexuality, about the legalization of marijuana, whatever it is, these are all the controversial things that people want to talk about. Those are not the most controversial thing that we believe. The most controversial thing we believe is the thing that we preach every single weekend. It is that people have sinned and are separated from God, and the only way to repair that relationship is through Jesus Christ. That is the most controversial thing we preach. That's the most controversial thing we believe. And that's the core of what people are rejecting. Yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. That's the simple message of the gospel that we proclaim. And therein actually lies the problem for us because people don't believe in Jesus and they don't respect his authority and they're not accepting his gospel because they don't believe the Bible. In fact, I read a study here um, that uh, 67% of Canadians still call themselves Christian in the broad sense of that, and then uh, only 11%, though, would read the Bible even monthly. Now, listen, if you're a genuine Christian, you have a hunger for God, you want to read His Word, you want to hear it preached, you want to get it open, I would think more than monthly. And yet, this is, this is a, a pretty good indication of where Canadians are at, despite the fact that they're claiming to be Christians, at least 67% of them, the reality is in, do you even hunger for him at all? And only 11% would be reading the Bible. That's not to say that they're actually saved. It's just that once a month, at least, they get the Bible open and read it. And that's, that's the challenge that we're facing. And again, it's to say, most Canadians, would we agree, most Canadians reject Jesus. They reject his message. And Jesus said to the people in Jerusalem in the latter part of verse 42 there, you can see it, but now these things, uh, these truths, this gospel, it's hidden from your eyes. You're not even seeing it. You're not, you're not entertaining it. You're not thinking about it. They couldn't see the peace that Jesus was offering to them. They rejected it just as the majority of Canadians do today, and we should weep over that. Weep, but not be despondent. Not allow ourselves to slip into defeatism and think, therefore, well, you know what? The cause is lost. I'm just going to throw in the towel. I'm not going to bother. In fact, we should uh, see this mass rejection of Jesus as an impetus for us, as the motivation for us to actually redouble our efforts in this matter of sharing the gospel of Christ. And two key phrases that we use around here, uh, the first one is to go and tell. We need to actually go and tell the gospel to people where they are. And the great thing about the church is that, that God has placed each one of you in very unique situations so that you can reach people I would never reach and I can reach people you would never reach. You are strategically placed. Please see this as something God has done. You are strategically placed in your neighborhood, in your workplace, and in your family to reach the people in each of those spheres who do not yet know him. I can't reach those people, but you can. And when you start to consider that, the number of people who have worshiped here over this weekend and all of those who are actually believers and all of those different spheres, you start to think about the thousands of people that we can reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So go to those places where you're going anyway and tell them 
the gospel and live that out in front of them. That's the go and tell part. The second phrase uh, we use commonly around here is a, a come and see. You're going to have some of those people in your life who are like some crisis comes into their life or they just come to you someday. Hey, I know you're a believer and I've been thinking about the Bible lately and I, I, I'm thinking about exploring a little bit more about God. And you have that person in your life. That's the person that you say to them, you know what, would you come and see what God is doing at our church? Would you come and meet some people that love Jesus? Would you come and, and, and experience the worship and, and hear some teaching? Just come and see. Listen, if we would commit again, again, redouble our efforts in, in light of the fact that we live in a world that is increasingly succumbing to the darkness, would you agree with that? Increasingly succumbing to the darkness. And the great news about that, I know it doesn't sound like great news, the great news about that is the light of Jesus Christ will shine more brightly in the midst of that darkness. We don't have to deal with all the cultural Christianity anymore. We now know there's a very distinct difference between what we proclaim, the peace that Jesus Christ offers, and what the world is offering, which is nothing. There is no solution for the lack of peace that people have in their lives. And so the light shines in the darkness. The soil is, is rich and ready for the planting of the seeds of the gospel. Go and tell come and see because they've rejected him. Is my heart broken for those who are without Christ because they've rejected him, but not just because they've rejected him, but also because they're facing devastating consequences as a result. Now, we're going to spend a little bit of extra time on this second point here because there's a lot we need to say, but Jesus knew what was coming. We know what's coming for those who reject Jesus Christ and his gospel. Verse 43, Jesus said this to them, the days will come upon you when your enemies, and he's talking about the Romans because Israel was part of the Roman Empire, had been conquered. The day will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Now, this is a good description of warfare of the time, siege warfare, where a city, the, the means by which a city would be taken. If we were to translate this into modern times, Jesus would be saying to people, um, listen, your enemy's going to come and they're going to carpet bomb your city. And they're going to flatten everything. And they're going to be completely indiscriminate about women and children and civilians, and it won't matter to them. They're going to lay waste to it. That's what Jesus is predicting now for the city of Jerusalem. And 40 years after Jesus spoke, that's exactly what happened. The historical context here in AD 70, the emperor Titus, the Roman emperor, had finally had enough with the Jewish people and their constant insurrections. Listen, the Jewish people could just never settle under Roman rule. Titus had had enough of it, and he sent the legions in, and they did exactly what Jesus predicted. They tore down the walls, they destroyed the temple, they laid waste to the city. They let the Jews know who was in charge. All of this is recorded in uh, the Jewish historian uh, Josephus' works and in other places. And we might ask the question, so why? Why did Jesus make this prediction, and why did this have to happen? 
And we get the answer in verse 44, the latter part there. And Jesus just said, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, by visitation here, you have to understand what Jesus is saying. He is making a very bold declaration about who he is at this moment. They've been waiting for their visitation. Their prophets had spoken about the visitation. The word of God had testified to it. And Jesus in this moment is saying very clearly, I am the Messiah. I am the visitation of God in your midst. This is the thing that was getting the religious leaders all stirred up because he was claiming this. The prophets had said this over and over again in their scriptures in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. They had the Bible. The Jewish people were people of the book. They would gather in their synagogues every Sabbath day to hear the reading of God's word. And it's these scriptures that testified, pointed to Jesus Christ. But they didn't see it. The visitation was right there. He was right in their midst. And they didn't see it. So Jesus speaks this prophecy. Again, something that had already been predicted in the Old Testament. The temple and the city would be leveled because they rejected him. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly sad for them. I'm sad that that happened to Jerusalem. I'm sad that the temple was torn down. I'm sad about the fact that it took more than 1,800 years for the Jews to kind of get back into their land. They still haven't been able to rebuild their temple. I'm, I'm sad about all of that. But I'm way more concerned about what this says about us now. Because you have to understand that the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, like this is a stand-in for the judgment of God that's still pending over the world today. I mean, this is a warning to us. This is about the judgment of God. So you can look at this situation that Jesus is talking about and you can blame the Romans for the destruction of Jerusalem or you could rewind all the way back 500 years to a man named Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian empire who sent his armies in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. I mean, you can blame both of them for what they did to Israel. But the fact of the matter is the scriptures say both of them, Titus and Nebuchadnezzar, were agents of God's judgment over God's people. They were doing God's will. After all, Jerusalem was his city. The temple was his temple. If he wanted to flatten it, he could. And he did. And God is judging and will judge this world yet. And the consequences are going to be devastating. In fact, write these two phrases down if you're taking notes, uh, two, two phases of consequence. The first one would be near consequences and then eventual consequences. We'll talk about both of those. First of all, near consequences. These are the judgments of God which happen in this life now. God is actively judging both those who are unsaved and those who would be professing believers and we see this in a number of places throughout the scriptures. There's a lot of different examples I could use where God, in the immediate, disciplined his people, disciplined people, judged people who were opposing him. But the one example I want us just to focus in on comes from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The apostle Paul's writing to the Corinthian church about the, the procedure, the process of taking the Lord's table, communion. 
And so he goes through, he kind of reiterates some of the things that are said in the gospel to kind of lay it out. This is how you take the table. And, and then he, he says this, the, the problem is some of you, and this is his phrase, some of you are taking the table in an unworthy manner. He said, you're not judging yourselves before you come. And so when you're taking the bread and when you're drinking the cup, you're doing it in an unworthy way. And then he says, that's the judgment part. Then he says, there's a consequence of that. And he says, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. He says, that's why many of you are weak and sick. And some of you have even, what, did, what does the passage say? Some of you have even died for taking communion wrong. That's a near consequence. That's God judging in the immediate. And we, we test God to our own peril. We push the patience of God and, and, and tempt him tempt him to judge us. Near consequences. And then eventual consequences. This is the judgment of God after we die or at the coming of Jesus if we're still alive when he comes. Eventual consequences. I think about a verse like Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I mean, not if you know him. Not if you know him. But if you don't know him, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The most uncomfortable doctrine that we believe is the doctrine of hell. I mean, the reality is, if we're being honest here today, we, we would rather not believe that. We don't want to hear about the doctrine of hell. We embrace this as Bible-believing Christians, but we prefer not to think about it. We, we don't want it to be real. Well, except maybe in the case of, of despots who carry out genocide on their people or, or, um, or, or child molesters or, or abusers of women and children. Mass murderers who walk into schools and, and, and kill innocent people. Now, let's have hell for them. That's not where we struggle. You see, we struggle when it's, when it's someone's grandma who lived a, a really good life and was just so nice to everyone but just had no time for church and no time for the Bible and no time for Jesus. We really struggle when it's a loved one. Or, or that friend we knew who was just so morally upstanding. I mean, they ran in every run that you could run around the waterfront and they raised so much money and they were so community spirited and minded and, and they were just a good person. They had a good marriage. They have great kids. They're model citizens. But he didn't believe in God. We don't want to think about hell when we think about such people. And please hear me when I say all of this. I'm not uh, being flippant about it at all. I have had the unenviable task of doing funerals for family members of mine who did not know the Lord. 
And it's one thing to have to grapple with it. It's quite another thing to have to stand up in front of your family and walk through that. Do these people go to eternal torment? We secretly and not so secretly reinterpret the Bible so that we can cater to our own sensibilities around all of this. So we can explain it away and it doesn't hurt so much. We, we believe, in essence, what we would rather believe rather than what the Bible says. Augustine, this is exactly where he went with this quote, Augustine said, who cautions us against following the example of those who, while not slighting the authority of the sacred scriptures, in other words, they believe the Bible. They believe the authority of God's word. Who cautions us against following the example of those who, while not slighting the authority of the sacred scriptures, nevertheless interpret them wrongly and suppose that what is to happen will not be what the scriptures speak of but what they themselves would like to happen. But I would like it if good moral people didn't have to go to hell. I mean, good moral people according to my standard of that, not God's, of course. I would like it if especially my loved ones who fall into that category not have to go to hell. And the reality is so many Bible teachers today even are just twisting back and forth, trying to figure out how to reinterpret this and teach it in a different way to make it more palatable to us. Those without Christ face devastating eternal consequences. And I will do my job as a preacher right now to please God and, and maybe not please some people who are even here in this room right now. I will do my job as a preacher to tell you what the Bible actually says about the devastating consequences of rejecting Christ. I will give you the Bible's description of hell in six passages. First of all, it is soul destruction. The destruction of the body is one thing. Lots of people can hurt the body. But the soul is the eternal part of who we are. That's the part that truly matters. Soul destruction, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell is also an unquenchable fire. Matthew 13, 41 to 42, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is also forever torment. Revelation 14, 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. I mean, are, you, are you hearing these? 
the devastating consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ. We as believers need to hear this because even though we are not in peril of hellfire as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to hear this so that we will weep for those who are headed there. So, so, so that we will be motivated to be on mission, sensing the urgency of telling everyone who's in our sphere of influence about Jesus Christ. Hell is also devoid of God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment, listen, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Every unbeliever in the world today, whether they hate Jesus, reject him, are ambivalent toward him, it doesn't matter. They're still receiving the blessings of God. You can hate God in this world and still receive blessing from him. The goodness of God in this world. He's made the world. It's an awesome place to live. And unbeliever and believer alike get to enjoy that. But you take God out of the picture. No more grace, no more mercy, no more goodness, no more blessing. The absence of God is hell. Matthew 8, 12 speaks of outer darkness. Luke 13 calls it utter darkness for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever, a place where there's no light whatsoever. And finally, it is eternal punishment, Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, here's the hope, but the righteous into eternal life. These are the devastating consequences of rejecting Christ. Now listen, this message is obviously being communicated to those who have profession in Christ. The, the point behind the message is for us to weep for those who don't have Christ. But it's very likely there are some people in this room who have not given their life to Jesus Christ. And it would be wrong for me to run from this moment and not appeal to those who have not yet given their life to Christ to say to you, do it now. Why would you continue to reject Christ and know that these consequences are, are laid out for you in the future? Why would you not rather surrender to Christ in this moment and reverse the curse of sin and death that is over you? Why would you not receive the, the resurrection life that Jesus Christ is offering? Don't leave here today without giving your life to him confessing your sin and receiving the forgiveness that he offers. Because my heart breaks for you if you would come here and hear what's being said and leave without trusting Christ. Here's a third. Is my heart broken because their teachers are leading them astray. The scene shifts. In verse 45, he entered the temple. He began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the shortest account of this 
cleansing of the temple uh, narrative, Luke gives way fewer details than the other gospel. And he's really just trying to drive at one single point here. And this was more than just, you know, they had set up booths to sell things. Uh, they had set up booths to sell things, to exchange money, but they were extorting the people that were coming to worship. So in addition to taking up space that should have been used for prayer, especially for the Gentiles, they were extorting people. And the, and the religious leaders, and this is the point that Luke is trying to make, the religious leaders who were actually charged with overseeing the temple and helping people get into a relationship with God, approaching God, those people had allowed this to happen and in all likelihood were receiving kickbacks as a result. The whole thing was a, was a scam to steal money. That's why he calls it, a, the temple had become a den of robbers because robbers were in there taking things away from God's people. And the point, again, that he's trying to make is that the religious leaders were in on this. The very men charged with leading people to God had sold themselves to the devil and were leading God's people, not to him, but astray. And you can see that in, 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 in their vehement opposition to Jesus. Verse 47, Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, the principal men of the people, this is all the leaders, they're seeking to destroy him, but they can't. They can't find a single cause for accusation against him. No fault in him because he was sinless. And the people, we're going to find out, they were hanging on his every word. So they were actually creating in this moment a buffer between Jesus and the religious leaders again. They didn't find anything they could do. Because Jesus was without fault or sin. And he stood in such sharp contrast to these religious leaders. Ezekiel 34, again, if you're taking notes, write down this reference. Ezekiel 34, I would love to be able to spend some time in this passage, but there's like an extensive section there where God's talking about his leaders, what he calls his shepherds. So the, literally, it's the same word, the pastors of his people. And they had failed back then to shepherd God's people properly, to teach them the word of God, to, to, to live in the right way. They had been about themselves. And in that passage in Ezekiel 34, God actually gets to the end and he calls the pastors of God's people, he calls them his enemies. That's, I mean, that's rough. because they had led God's people astray. James 3.1 in the New Testament says something very similar, at least in terms of it being a warning, as Ezekiel 34 is a warning to leaders. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Is it okay to say that I don't like certain verses of the Bible? Is it okay to say that? I mean, this is a verse, whenever it comes to mind or I see it in an article or I'm reading through James and I come to him, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I need to find a new job. 
Because like I'm thinking, like we know as believers, we're, we're, not, we're not going to that judgment of the living and the dead. We skip that one because we have Jesus Christ. But we are going to be judged according to our works, the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm just thinking that judgment on its face is going to be hard enough. Don't you think that? Any judgment before God, I just feel like that's going to be hard enough. I don't need a stricter judgment. You know what I'm saying? I don't need that to be amped up in any way. So on some days, I think I should just go get a different job. But here's, here's where I draw comfort. And the reason why I can get up here every week and do this is because I'm not preaching my word. I'm not preaching things that I've come up with. I'm just getting us into the word of God to see it. And the way we, the way we articulate this at, at Harvest, of course, we have these four pillars. And the very first pillar is um, uh, unapologetic preaching. And the way we explain that out is we we proclaim or we preach the authority of God's word without apology. That's the way we say that. Now, the without apology part, that's my responsibility. That means that I'm going to get God's word open and I'm going to help us see the plain meaning of the text. As the original readers would have understood it, that's the main, main meaning we want to get. And then we want to grab the principle out of that and bridge that into our context and find application. How are we going to live in light of this? plain meaning of the text and apply that to our lives is really what we're going after. And so we just keep it like super simple, just like that. And so the without apology part is I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to smooth out the edges. Okay. I'm not going to try and make this easier for us. We're just going to get at the plain meaning of what God's word says and seek to live that out. So I take comfort from that. That's kind of my part in it. The first part of that, we proclaim the authority of God's word. Please understand, I'm preaching unapologetically, but I'm not preaching authoritatively. The authority is not in the preacher. It's never in the preacher. The authority is always and forever in the word of God. We preach the authority of God's word without apology. And when we do that, then I, I feel like if I'm just faithful to that, then I can withstand the stricter judgment. You know what I'm saying? I can, with, I can withstand that now because I'm just seeking to be faithful to this and let the authority of this speak to us. The authority is in the word and not the preacher. We open this book to see it and live it out. And if we continue to do that, then we're going to see life change come to people around us. We're going to see people accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ and finding life in him. And, and so this is about teachers leading people astray. And we're seeking to just get at the plain meaning of the tr truth and not do that. But so many preachers and teachers today are leading people astray. So many have simply made up their own religion and, and, and written their own scriptures or found some philosophy that's interesting to them and coupled that with some religious observance from over here and just kind of melded it all together in some designer religion. So many deviations from the truth of this word. So many preachers who are, who are conforming to the culture rather than speaking into it. Not every building that has church on it is proclaiming the truth. Not every person who calls themselves a pastor is a servant of God. We need to be discerning. Parents, you need to teach your children the principles of God's word yourself and not lead them astray. 
It should be a fearful thing for parents to even send their kids into high schools and, and to colleges and universities where teachers stand up in front of them and just say whatever they want to. I was thinking of this, and this is so interesting to me, and leading our young people, our children, our adult children away from Christ. We should weep for that and then stand up and proclaim the glorious gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen? We should do that. Finally, is my heart broken for those who are without Christ because so many are captivated by all of this but not committed to it? Verse 48 ends this way. All the people were hanging on his words. They were interested in what he was saying, but not invested. The people, again, were buffering him from the religious leaders because those religious leaders, verse 47, were seeking to destroy him. But these same people who at, at that point were standing between the religious leaders and Jesus, in a few days' time, those same people would just become so very fickle and would actually abandon Jesus. They would walk away from him. They would reject his teaching. Some of them would even stand in the crowds and would call for his crucifixion, crucify him, crucify him, they would call out. Where were the crowds when he was finally led away to his death? They were gone. At that point, nobody was captivated by him because they were never committed to him. You know, it's possible to attend here and call this your church, to even be a member, to attend worship every week, to hear the sermons, to participate and sing the songs, to have your kids in Harvest Kids and going to Awana and Harvest Youth. It's possible to love the people, to be in a small group, to be doing life with others, to love every part of it, to be captivated by what's going on here. And not actually be saved, not be committed. It's possible to hang on every word, every ministry, every great thing we do. And not give your life to it. The comfort and the convenience of this facility and of our ministry and of the programming we offer is enough to make a person feel good about their religion. To even get themselves to the place where they think that they're okay with God when in fact the reverse is true. And we should weep for them as well, the unsaved who might be among us. Because what they have is empty religion. What Paul said to Timothy is having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, the power of the resurrection. We should weep for them because being captivated is not enough. We need to be committed to the extent that we too are crucified with Christ and we too have experienced the power of his resurrection in our own life. Weep for those who are without Christ. We're gonna bring this in for a landing and um, I wanna come back to some stats. 67% again of Canadians would say they're Christians. 11% would read the Bible uh, at least monthly. Um, 8% is probably, maybe more like 6% is probably the number of evangelical Bible-believing Christians in this country. If we go with the 8% number, what that really means is that 92% of the people around you, 
92% of the people that live in your neighborhood, 92% of the people that you work with, 92% of the people at Georgian Mall shopping at the same time you are, 92% of the people going up and down the 400, 92% of the people in the movie theater have rejected Jesus Christ and are headed to an eternity without him. Am I weeping for them? Is my heart broken for them? This is the way we're going to close uh, this service. We're not going to sing um, a worship song. I feel like the response just needs to be different than that. So Joel's just going to play over this time, and we're going to go into a, a time of prayer and response. It's just personal prayer, just you and the Lord. But I, I took verse 42, and... And Jesus is coming into the city and he's kind of crying out to the city. But I want us just to adapt this into a prayer. It wasn't very hard for me as I was preparing this message to think about the many people who are in my life who don't know Jesus. And to be able to take their name and put it in the blank and pray this prayer for them. Would that, think of the first name of the person that you're thinking of right now. Would that this person, even this person, that's where the emotion comes in, would know on this day the things that make for peace. The thing that makes for peace is Jesus Christ. It's his gospel. Would that they would know this, God. Because right now, these truths are hidden from their eyes. Again, this is our close. So I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer over the list of names of people you know who don't have Christ. And I'm going to invite you, you can pray right where you are, but if you feel compelled to come up and kneel down and get before the Lord and maybe shed some tears on the carpet here, and you get up and, and if you're in the middle rows, don't be shy, push back the people. Everybody will be gracious here and come up to the front and pray or pray where you are and lift your requests up before the Lord. The benediction for the service is going to come right now. You are loved. But let's pray and let's respond. And when you have prayed and brought those names before the Lord, you can just quietly slip out. We're going to leave this as a place of prayer and response to the Lord. And so you come and pray and respond to him right now.